Good morning and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I am delighted to welcome you to today's conversation, a defining moment for good jobs. We're thrilled to have a great set of speakers with us here today, including Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation, Damian Dwin of Lafayette Square, April Verrett of SEIU, Dan Porterfield of the Aspen Institute, and Rachel Korberg, my partner at the Families and Workers Fund. We're so pleased to have leaders from business, labor, philanthropy, and the nonprofit sector in today's discussion, as we believe that good jobs are essential to a free, equitable, and thriving society, and that there's a role for all of us to ensure that all jobs are good jobs. In the interest of time, we'll keep introductions brief, but we have full bio information on our website if you'd like to learn more about these amazing speakers. And before we begin, I'll give a quick review of our technology. All attendees are muted. We very much welcome your questions. Please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we also encourage you to share your perspective. We know many of you joining us are experts in different aspects of this work. Please share your comments in the chat. Um, we encourage you to tweet about this conversation using the hashtag goodjobs. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, uh, please chat to us or you can reach us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This event is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. And closed captions are available for this discussion. Please click the CC button at the bottom of your screen if you would like to use those. And now it is my great pleasure to turn it over to Dan Porterfield to offer some opening remarks. Dan. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks everyone for being here. Uh, it's a, a great, really great thanks for me to the entire Economic Opportunities Program team for your work to organize today's event, uh, to gather up our speakers, um, and especially to put a spotlight, uh, as you, you do so well in so many ways, on the critical issues of how we create strong jobs, good jobs, that provide a springboard into economic security, uh, family stability, uh, extraordinary opportunity for the young, and resilience in an economy that has become all too volatile for so many different reasons. Um, and Maureen, you and your team are the leaders uh, across society, bringing people together from different sectors to try to figure out where are the solutions? Well, you know, last Friday, we all saw the latest jobs report and saw that the economy gained 263,000 new jobs. There's always a lot of questioning about is it good or bad in times of inflation that there are more jobs or less jobs, more demand. Um, and the economists sort of figure that out in, econ in ec economic terms. But what you're doing is saying, well, do we have any, any kind of a listing or a compendium of how many of those jobs are good jobs? And that's just not something that's put close enough into the viewfinder of so many people who are thinking about our economy. We really need good jobs, durable, good jobs. And for too long, you know, we've, we've assumed, or some have assumed, that uh, if you got a job, they were doing okay. Um, and the pandemic is maybe the latest chapter in the story that reveals how misplaced that assumption actually is. We, anyone who was looking saw the implications uh, of the pandemic for people living on the edge when the loss of a first paycheck sent millions of people 
to food lines to get nourishment for their family, their children, um, or you know, completely had to put one good thing like healthcare above another good thing like uh, feeding their children. Um, and you know, then their savings, which already was a tremendous national problem with crisis before the pandemic, um, with something like you know, 40% of the country not able to handle an emergency that costs three, $400 because they have no savings. Well, you know, um, this was a pretty tough stretch. It still is. And um, so many working families had no cushion, no, no resilience at all, and, and, and really no government policies to help build those cushions. Um, and through the pandemic, and again, today, you, know, you see extraordinary risks that people take as frontline workers. And um, there's a lot of goodwill so much towards frontline workers. We cheer, we ring bells, we, uh, we thank people so much. And yet, can we now step back and really do the planning that's needed in order to build uh, models of good jobs that meet people's needs, healthcare, childcare, a living wage, uh, the opportunity to speak for your rights at work, um, the, the stability families need. Um, well, uh, that's what this is about. Um, and we know, and it's for years we've known, of course, that the burdens of low quality jobs fall most heavily on women and workers of color. Um, and we know that overall economic mobility has declined. And we know that there is uh, a rising group, an eroding middle class, if you will, uh, 30, 40 years back would have had a good job. Uh, and today, that same, those same duties don't actually provide the security that people need. Um, and this is, these are part of our ideals as a country, that if you work hard, uh, you can support yourself and your family, you can invest in your children's education, you can propel your student, your, your child, into uh, a life that uh, provides for them the opportunity to develop the greatness inside of them because they've been well-educated and because the economy has a place for them and a place where they can grow. This idea that our children have a chance to do better than we did has powered so many families, so many working families. And working families don't believe in that story anymore because it's not true for them, it's divorced from reality, then everything else that we take for granted in our country as a functioning democracy and a, a thriving pluralistic multiracial society, um, all that starts to crumble as well. Committing to good jobs is a foundation of rebuilding the American dream and rebuilding the faith, public faith, public trust in our democracy and our institutions. Democracy has to deliver is what our great uh, Aspen Institute trustee Madeleine Albright would say again and again. And today delivery means among a few other things, certainly an economy that provides good jobs. Well, Maureen and her team build programming on a premise that we all need to work together. Businesses, labor unions, bikers, educators and advocates, philanthropists, activists, everyday people going to work every day, wanting more for their, for their families and for their lives. We all have a role to play in advancing good jobs and building a strong, resilient, inclusive economy, which is one in which everyone can thrive. Maureen, Rachel, I wanna thank you for the work you've been leading to pull so many together all these different strands coming together as a great cord to pull us forward. Um, thank you for what you're doing to build this concise and compelling statement that defines good jobs 
a shared goal for all of us to work towards. I look forward to today's conversation. Let me now pass it back to Maureen. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> really appreciate that. And now I'm just going to quickly turn it over to Rachel Corper, the extraordinary leader of the Families and Workers Fund. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much, Maureen and Dan. So I'm going to be brief, but let's ground ourselves. You know, last year, more than 40 million people quit their jobs in search of a better job. And this was called the Great Resignation or the Great Renegotiation. Many employers face challenges in hiring enough workers and job quality, this quest for good jobs, it's already a transformative force shaping our economy and our labor market. And yet until now, there was no broadly shared definition embraced across sectors of what these workers intuitively knew they deserved and were seeking out. So that limited our ability to have shared language and a shared North Star for what we're trying to achieve. And as Dan said, it's not about creating just any job, but it's about good jobs that sustain and uplift the people in them. So to create the definition that we released last week, we convened a group of diverse leaders from across labor, business, workforce development, policy, the nonprofit sector. Together, we studied many of the current definitions of job quality, we synthesized tons of research, especially polling and research on what matters to workers themselves in their own words. And we also met with many small and large companies and frontline workers to workshop the definition and statement and get their input. Across these conversations, something we heard again and again was this needs to be simple and it needs to be something we can actually feel. We can't have 50, 100 different indicators. It's got to be something we can eventually operationalize and use to guide action. So here's where we came at. There's three elements of a good job in this definition, economic stability, economic mobility, and then equity, respect, and voice. And that's pretty simple. In a good job, you should be able to get by, have the opportunities to get ahead, and also be respected on your job, regardless of race, gender, disability, any other identities or experiences. And you should be able to positively shape your workplace. Economic stability is about things like family sustaining pay, sufficient and accessible benefits, health insurance, paid leave. Economic mobility is about things like equal access to paid training and career pathways, fair hiring, you know, maybe re-examine if a college degree is really required for that position. And then finally, equity, respect, and voice. This can be the hardest to define, definitely the hardest to measure, but it's absolutely critical to workers across industries and pay levels from the most highly compensated to the lowest compensated in our economy. This means that good jobs should support a sense of belonging and purpose. They should embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, and they should ensure workers have voice and power to improve their workplaces. So when we released the statement last week, we were proud that 100 leaders and organizations had signed from large companies to labor unions and philanthropies. Um, I'm excited to share that as of this morning, it's now nearly 200 signatures. So while not every person and organization that has signed will take the exact same type of action, and that's to be expected, I do take a lot of comfort and have a lot of hope that we have this shared North Star. So with that, I'm gonna pass over to Lydia, um, our fantastic moderator for today. Lydia is an economics reporter with the New York Times. She previously reported with ProPublica, CNN, the Houston Chronicle, Washington Post, and more. 
She's really known for the way that she makes sense of real-time, very complex labor and economics data, and then blends that with human stories in her reporting to bring to life challenges like low-quality jobs. So with that, Lydia, I'll turn it over to you to introduce our amazing panel, three leaders who've all helped to shape this definition and statement and are here to talk about it today. Um, thank you, Rachel, for that really kind introduction. Um, so this is an amazing panel. We do not have enough time to like give everyone justice, but we'll try to get everybody in a little bit. Um, Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation, Damian Dwin from Lafayette Square, April Verrett from SCIU. And, um, you know, as Rachel noted, I think this is a really important time to have this conversation because we're it's a time of labor market power born not out of any institutional changes, but simply scarcity. And that's a really powerful thing, but it won't last. And we're kind of on the precipice of probably entering a period of labor market slackness, as we put it in um, on our beat. So um, that that's going to require some more robust protection and commitment to making these good jobs, good jobs in the future. And I hope hopefully there's as many as possible of them to go around. Um, so my first question to you all was, um, you know, why is this shared definition really important? I mean, because I think a lot of people might read it and say like, oh yeah, that makes sense. What is revelatory about this? Uh, it seems like we could all have just written this in our sleep because um, people intuitively know what a good job is. Like what was difficult and why is this an achievement? Um, anyone want to hop in on that? Or I'll call. Oh, we're, we're so polite. Uh, so, <laughs> good morning, and I want to thank the Aspen Institute for um, having SEIU as a part of this important discussion. You know, I will start Lydia by saying I don't think it's that intuitive. I don't think that. Uh, I think it is totally subjective for many people what a good job is, and so having a definition that we can all have a shared understanding and have a goal that we are all working toward together to make sure all jobs in this country are good jobs, I think is really, really important. Um, you use the word power um, a, a little bit ago, and I think it's in really important because any conversation about what makes a job a good job, we can't have if we don't talk about power right, inherent in employer and employee relationships is power. Who has it, who doesn't? And I think what us defining a good job means for us in the labor movement is that workers have an opportunity to realize and, and utilize their own power to be self-determinative as, um, as workers, um, to make sure they have some voice. Um, and a seat at the table to help determine and drive for themselves what's a good job uh, in this economy. So really proud to be a conversation in this work to hopefully move us toward a more equitable society where a good job is attainable for all workers. I would just I would just add that it really depends on the perspective you bring. So I think employers and workers should want the same thing for work, and that is that work is also dignity, that with work comes dignity. And you have to, uh, in our system, calibrate uh, the employer owner, shareholder, uh, with the worker and center workers and dignity. 
uh, often we are put in this, uh, this binary of you have to either be for workers or for shareholders. I believe that's a false binary. I believe that uh, binary is what has contributed to the growing inequality we have in this country. And so part of the reason it was important to be very clear about this definition is hopefully to also have employers agree because most workers will tell you what they simply want from their work is to have a livelihood that allows them to live with dignity. It is not a dignified livelihood or existence in this country to work full time and still be poor. As we have millions of workers in this country who still rely on public assistance to be able to make ends meet. This is what it's about. Thank you, Damien. Did you have any thoughts on that? I think that was a mic drop, so I'll <laughs> I'll hang out for the next question. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so a lot of people in this Zoom have been fighting for aspects of things included in this statement for a long time, you know. And so I'm wondering what more can be done. What do you envision happening to try to operationalize some of these principles, you know, that that may that may not have been done before, right? It's like it's not for lack of trying that we people have been asking for things like retirement security, higher minimum wages, union voice. So does this need a legislative push? Um, are you just gonna shame companies into providing better jobs? Because I think, you know, in my experience, a lot of this is about certain sectors and certain big employers. You know, there's crappy jobs in all parts of the economy, but like really the majority of them are in places where wages have been depressed for a long time. Um, so I'm just curious to know, what do you guys think? Um, and maybe this would be a good one for Dina to jump in on as a sort of person in touch with companies all the time. Um, what's, how is this gonna get you to the next level of achieving all these things? Well, uh, I really wanna double click on your use of the phrase, uh, you know, place. What we know from the data is geography, place matters and determining outcomes for human beings and corporations. They're inextricably linked. Uh, this data has been tracked by the government in meticulous fashion as part of the census uh, since the Kerner Commission met and CRA was passed. So we know what census tracts or zip codes in the United States are starved of capital and economic mobility. Uh, they're defined as low moderate income places. And to get technical for just half a second, uh, all that means is that the area median income in these places below 80%. That knowledge is incredibly useful for employers, uh, the stakeholders that Darren described, specifically shareholders and workers themselves, and determining where does economic mobility exist and in the places where it does not exist, what what data is available to help discern the underlying causes. Having language um, like a, a good definition of good jobs uh, provided to the system is helpful because I believe with optimism, there's a, there's a path, Lydia, uh, to have you know, Ron DeSantis and Elizabeth Warren at the Thanksgiving table together toasting each other on how the system 
was bent in a way to help human beings without the the vitriol and the negativity around ESG and anti-wokeness and all of this stuff, we actually can get to really specific practical things that help all corporations center human beings. Um, when I when I drill down, I see above all else a benefits gap in the United States. We have a vibrant established 401k retirement system, and we have really expensive healthcare in certain states for certain workers. But we know private employers aren't getting it done. The government is not getting it done. Labor is suffering, which helps explain the lack of productivity and the turnover we're seeing. Getting to a place where we have common knowledge and shared values and try to close the benefits gap, I think will go a long way toward helping the system. Vidi, I think the, the root uh, here is a larger ideology that we've bought into in this country for the past 50 years. And that is that the only stakeholder who matters in our economy is the shareholder. And this is at a time when fewer and fewer workers are owners. My grandfather, who was a semi-literate third grade educated porter in an oil company in Texas, although he was not uh, highly educated. He was an owner. He received an old-fashioned profit-sharing uh, program that allowed him, when he retired, uh, to, with his Social Security, live a life uh, for the rest of his life with dignity. Those programs that allowed workers to be owners in most corporations have been terminated. Uh, we know the research, when workers are owners, they are more productive. There is higher level of satisfaction and retention, and there is more mobility. So we need to think about that as uh, one of the ways in which we can return uh, to achieving the kinds of elements of stability, of mobility, uh, and then a voice, because it is very important that we, uh, as April said so well, that we address the issue of voice and power and participation. All of these elements are essential to the larger uh, objective of making work work for America. We have been in this country uh, for over 200 years uh, in a a system of the tension between capitalism and democracy. Uh, this is healthy uh, when it's balanced, but when it is imbalanced, democracy loses. America can't be America if democracy loses. And so no matter how many few of us get richer, if more of us are poorer, America can't be America and won't be America. And the implications for our democracy are profound. Yeah. And if I may add to that, we cannot have a conversation about good jobs without realizing, owning, and, and really understanding that good jobs are union jobs, period. 
And to that, we have to seek to transform all jobs in this country so that workers can have the opportunity to have voice, to join together collectively with their coworkers. And the reality is today, all workers in this, in this country don't have that opportunity, whether it's because employers stand in the way or because the system isn't designed to allow that to happen. So I think we have work to do to really think about how we open our imaginations um, about uh, worker voice, about workers being able to come together collectively to form organizations. And in that, we have to center those of us who are least likely to be able to, to have a union um, and those who are most likely to not have a good job. And that's women, that's people of color, particularly black and brown people, and that's immigrants. And so in this conversation, we have to look at the parts of our economy where these folks, folks like me, right? What jobs do we have? And how do we begin shaping those jobs to be good jobs? Yeah, so a lot of this makes me think about um, what happens when providing good jobs is just more expensive for companies, right? Like there is the there is a case that providing good jobs pays for itself, right? Like in worker productivity and happiness retention. I think I would like that to be true. And I think in some cases it probably is, but not always. And so I'm wondering what you guys think is the route to ensuring good jobs um, in, the, uh, in the circumstances where there may not be a union, right? Like nine out of 10 private sector, workers in this economy are not unionized. Um, <clears throat> and that may increase, right? But um, does this a, is this a question of laws and regulations? Um, is it a question of scorecards and transparency so people can choose what they, to the extent that they have that, that leverage where they go to work? Um, I think employee ownership is a really critical and fascinating piece of this, but it's a piece of this right now and like has not increased despite all the efforts around it. So I'd love to see that increase, but I'm not sure it's going to be the solutions in the near term. So anyway, what do you see as the sort of getting the route to getting your hands around the large mass of jobs in this economy that where workers don't have enough power right now um, and it's in not in the interests of the existing like owners of capital to allow this to happen? Well, look, the facts and circumstances are changing. So we're coming off of 40 years of declining interest rates. What inflation, high interest rates, widened credit spreads, lower equity valuations, um, higher energy costs, what this portfolio of largely bad stuff does for the economy is it creates uh, an environment in which people are going to get creative. Uh, everyone's gonna have to innovate and we're already seeing some change. For example, uh, there are firms that will actually provide a lower cost of capital to employers that provide data on how they're doing the right thing by their workers. Think about getting to a place where there are economic incentives for corporations to do right by their staff because the capital markets in their self-interest recognize having lower turnover, higher worker productivity, positioning the employer to be more attractive to attract talent in this competitive environment is good for your financial investment. It improves your recovery in the event of default. It improves the chances of earning profits. So I think you can find 
Um, you know, there's a push-pull dynamic here. It's one thing to have people of goodwill doing the right thing. It's something else to have people who are <clears throat> desperate to reduce attrition and looking for ways to boost productivity and recognize if they double click on things like benefits, uh, they can actually see better outcomes for the institution. So that creativity, uh, those juices are starting to flow. And I think it begins with leadership from people like, of course, Darren and April, uh, who have bully pulpits as it were, uh, but also think it starts with owners in places that we know are underserved and often overlooked, recognizing the system doesn't work and they have to come up with some new stuff. And there are people out here looking to give them incentives to do that new stuff. And Lydia, I would say actually to, to challenge your, your statement, um, there has not been much activity around, uh, for example, uh, ownership and many of these other elements. The activity uh, have been choices we have made. So just to be clear, we are in the situation we are in, growing inequality, of fewer people feeling stable, uh, fewer owners uh, in this country among workers, because we have designed a system to get us what we've got. It should not be a surprise to us that we have uh, the, the level of inequality we have. Uh, when uh, policy choices were made to design in a system, in an economic system, uh, in a work system, an employment system that uh, benefited uh, shareholders, benefited uh, those who were wealthier and more privileged in the economy uh, and compounded the disadvantage of particularly, as April said, people of color, um, people, uh, working class white people, uh, people with disabilities have all been disadvantaged uh, in this system as it has been designed. So it is hard to imagine how we uh, undo this without some policy intervention that addresses the problem we've diagnosed. Yeah, I believe policy intervention, as Darren talked about, is extremely important. But I also think um, the corporate um, actors in this country and really their global corporations have to step up to the plate, right? We are seeing workers across the country um, in polling, you know, workers, uh, unions have higher approval ratings, more people want to join unions, more people are, are interested in figuring out, hey, what's that union thing all about? We see workers at places like Starbucks and Amazon, right, um, rising up wanting voice. And I think that is a signal to corporations. I think as Damien is talking about, there is something there, right? Workers are telling us that they want more. And I, it just, I have to say the economy, the, the, our system in this country was built on chattel slavery, right? From the very beginning of this economy, it was designed about how do we maximize profit without paying people anything. And so it is so ingrained in, in the fabric of this country that you, you, know, you get away with paying folks as little as you can and getting as much out of them as you can to maximize your profit. And I think we gotta have 
that conversation, right? We gotta have how workers have been disadvantaged um, and, and corporations and, and folks who make money off of the labor of others have been incentivized, right? To, to, to depress wages and it continues and it permeates today. And I'm in Los Angeles, right? And the city feels like it is a powder keg I mean, I'm sure many of you have been watching this unfold. Like we gotta really start having the real conversations about workers, about our communities, about what pits us against one another. If we're gonna get to a different place, not just for workers, but for all of us, because we all won't succeed if we don't come together and figure out a different path forward. So um, there's a lot of good questions coming in on the chat and the Q&A. So keep those coming in. And what I'm seeing is a lot of want, like requests for specifics, right? Like um, if you were to, you know, if we've built, as Darren said, a system that has led us to this place um, of insecurity and inequality, et cetera, like what are two things that you think would be most important to do? One person suggested like, is it economic development incentives, right? We throw a lot of money at companies to come to places. And usually it's about, you know, there's a job requirement and there maybe is a wage requirement and that's sort of it. And it doesn't include like everyone's subcontracted workers. Um, so, you know, what are, what are the, I think we've all stipulated like policies needed for large scale change. Um, again, many people have been fighting for a national paid leave program and that kind of thing for a long time. So um, if you were to pick one to two, really the most important policy changes, what would they be? Well, I'll go first. Oh, the, larger, sorry, the larger benefits uh, that you've talked about uh, around uh, paid leave and, and uh, is, is critical. But I also think uh, that the ways in which uh, it, the incentives in the corporate <laughs> tax codes are written uh, have a huge impact here. For example, uh, a company receives more for uh, uh, investing in a robot than it does in a human being. So the way depreciation, the way uh, you uh, over time uh, uh, take the cost of, of that investment versus investing in an actual worker uh, disadvantages uh, and disincents the company um, from investing in workers and people. So I think we need to look at the way the, the tax code is written and really get into uh, the granular ways to incent and encourage investment in, in people. And I will also come back to what I always say about ownership, because when we look at the black, white, brown wealth gap in this country, uh, it is significantly impacted by the lack of intergenerational assets that white Americans have accreted uh, over generations, certainly since uh, the public policy behind the GI Bill that created uh, a generation of middle and upper middle class white Americans that did not do the same for African Americans. Uh, so I think that we have to, if we look at just those two uh, policies, but I'll also say uh, that uh, while, while I agree with April on uh, the challenge of this country's history, we had a period of time in this country when we started to see for the first time in this country's history, mobility, uh, economic and social mobility for African-Americans. Uh, we saw black male, urban black male 
rates of participation in the labor force at the highest levels uh, we've seen between the 1960s and the 1980s. So we have been able to deliver the elements of this good jobs uh, uh, manifesto, but something happened. Uh, something happened in the 80s and 90s uh, that changed the trajectory, uh, that widened the gap, uh, that made more people um, and again, policies, whether that be uh, our criminal justice policies and the policies on the war uh, on, on drugs, which took uh, literally hundreds of thousands of black and brown men off the streets and out of the labor force and other policies. So we have to come back and understand that there is a larger gestalt of policies that are impacting workers and that legacy remains with us today. So I, I, I absolutely agree with Darren. And I think we have to also know that when there was that period of upper mobility for all of us, there was the highest rates of unionization in the country as well. And so I think part of the policies that we absolutely have to enact is allowing it making it easier for workers to join the union and not allowing corporations to make it so difficult for workers to do that. Today, workers have to walk through fire to be able to form their organizations. And we have to say that that is not tolerable in this country. I think we also have to continue to do things like raise the minimum wage, right? Make it mandatory for uh, folks to have paid leave and paid time off. Those are parts of good jobs that we can actually do something about at both the municipal, state, and federal levels. Two quick suggestions, shrink the playing field and narrowly deliver enhanced benefits. On the topic of shrinking the playing field, we know where low moderate income people live. We know where low moderate income business is headquartered. A dollar invested in a business in a low moderate income place is more impactful than a dollar invested in a rich community like Greenwich, Connecticut or 57th Street in Manhattan or Silicon Valley. And so the focus should be number one, drive capital and opportunity to places where we measurably, empirically, statistically know there is need. The cost of capital in those places should not be higher than it is elsewhere. And then finally, the benefits gap. The more we do to close the benefits gap for labor, especially in those places, the further along we will get. And there are very tangible, practical, existing tools we can use to close the benefits gap in those places. Great, I love I love the concrete suggestions here. Um, we're getting to the end of our time, um, but you know I do think that um, one person does raise an interesting question about antitrust policy, right? Because um, one piece driving down wages and making it harder for people to advance is is monopsony power, right? There's Walmart and there's McDonald's. And if you don't have a wide skill set, it's hard to get around that. Do you guys think that um, ensuring fair competition among businesses is important to the labor picture as well? I mean, it's essential, um, Lydia. And there is very clear evidence that over time, um, our Justice Department has taken a, a different approach to the issue of uh, monopoly and antitrust. Um, and, and that, I believe, has been harmful. Um, it's been harmful as the technology sector has grown. 
without significant regulation, so much so that the actual public interest, uh, our public's interest in this new sector has been completely defined by the private sector. They've told us what the public interest is. Um, and so absolutely, we have to address uh, the issue of monopolies. And I think you see across um, polling, across po political parties, geographies, regions, et cetera, um, significant concern about um, the, 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 the sector that uh, is, I think, clearly the most uh, egregious in, in regards to this question of monopoly. Great. Um, unless anyone else has any burning comments, I think we have to leave it there. Um, but thank you all for this conversation. There's a lot more to talk about. Um, so hopefully we'll get that chance in the future. Thanks thank you so much. Well, thank you all. That was fantastic. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much to the audience for your tremendous engagement in this conversation. I want to say that this conversation is not the end. It is the beginning, right? We have our shared vision and we've gotten a number of ideas in this conversation about actions to take to advance this vision of good jobs. Um, a couple of things I just want to leave you all with. So first, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at this statement, please do take a look at this statement. Um, if you are uh, supportive of it, please do sign it. Um, we have a brief sign-on form for you. It would be great to have people join this movement for good jobs. Um, Next, we are going to be releasing a Pathways to Action document following this uh, next week. Um, and this document really is a compendium of actions that came up as we were building this statement from all the stakeholders Rachel mentioned that we were working with throughout. Because as Darren really noted, the situation we have is a function of our choices and we meet, need to make different choices and then we need to put those choices into action. So we're going to be releasing this Pathways to Action document. It is by no means an exhaustive list of actions. We'd love your feedback, ideas, please contribute to this station, we, this statement. We would love to hear from you. Um, and third, I just want to say, you know, metrics matter. And, you know, the Families and Workers Fund, I think, has really been leading on sort of saying, we're going to have a statement on good jobs, but we need to have some, some targets for making progress. Um, their job quality measurement initiative has been an important cont contributor to this. Um, the Aspen Economic Opportunities Program has been delighted to be one of the contributors to this effort, but they've brought together a whole variety of experts to think about how do we track progress towards this vision of good jobs through the job quality measurement initiative that they're facilitating collaboratively with the Department of Labor. So just wanna highlight that as something for folks to keep an eye on. Um, and also I just wanna mention that the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program uh, launched a job quality center of excellence and we will continue curating a variety of res resources, research, case studies, practical tools and more to support people in the job quality work. Um, resources shared today will be available through that platform and we welcome your ideas, questions, comments on the resources there. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you again to Lydia for your expert moderation. Thank you, Damien, Darren, April for your 
um, amazing comments, but also for your incredible leadership in this work. We really are very appreciative of that. Um, thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thank you, Rachel, for your incredible partnership and leadership in this work. Um, and many thanks to Tianka Perkins at uh, Families and Workers Fund, at the Aston EOP team, Shelly Stewart, Yuri Chang, Amanda Finns, Adrian Lee, Tony, Tony Mastria for all their work in stewarding the Good Jobs Champions Group and producing today's event. It always takes um, a whole team effort. Uh, please do take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey, which will open in your web browser when you leave for the webinar. Thank you again, and we hope to see you all soon. Bye-bye.